you would, to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, I want to begin reading in verse 8 of this chapter, read down through verse 15. Remember, chapter divisions are not original. When Luke wrote, he wasn't writing the number 8, even in Greek. So when we have a chapter division, it is to help us locate things. There's a sense in which what we're going to be reading and considering Uh, is a unit, but it introduces the next chapter, where if you started the next chapter without reading the previous chapter, you can see how that would be a challenge to understand what's going on. We're going to take some time with the ministry and witness of Stephen, and so we'll consider this background to his speech that's given to the Sanhedrin in chapter 7, his martyrdom in chapter 7, but it's really following the election of the first yeah. servants in the church. This where he said verses one through seven that Stephen wrote it. So I know that highlighted Luke wrote. and singled out. And we see that his ministry surpassed uh, in terms of his activity just that ministry that he had serving the church. He was also very actively evangelizing and God was using him uh, and his gifts of healing, gift of healing. So begin verse 8. Scripture says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilician Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Up till chapter 6, our focus has been on the apostles. Problem arises in chapter 6 where we're introduced to some other individuals in the church who are going to serve in an official capacity. They're named there in chapter 6 and verse 5. And in that list, as Luke writes uh, this narrative of what's taking place in the early church, he describes Stephen with more detail than any of the others. It's not to say the others were any less filled with the Spirit and wisdom, but it is to draw attention to Stephen's faith and what God was doing in Stephen's life, even as he's about to, as Luke is about to describe further Stephen's ministry. And Stephen becomes the focal point, not an apostle, but one of these servants. I think we could call him a deacon. That's the word that is used of the kind of thing that Stephen did. Uh, in the church, but what we find Stephen doing is not what we would have expected. We might have expected to hear or to see a description of how he, along with these others, ministered to the widows who were being overlooked in that daily um, service or serving of food. But no, Stephen here is performing, verse 8, signs and wonders. He has the gifts of healing. And this tells us, in part, that God was not restricting the working of his spirit only to the apostles, although there are times where it is the apostles who are in view. God's gifts, the gifts of the spirit, were extended to others within 
the congregation there at Jerusalem, even as the gospel spread, I think you could say that God distributed his gifts in ways in the first century beyond just those who were serving in the official capacity uh, as the apostles were. And as we're given a description of Stephen's activity here, we're told what he was doing and the opposition that he faced and the persecution that he faced, and then the official trial that chapter 7 describes where Stephen has opportunity to defend himself. And by the end of the chapter, by the end of chapter 7, we find that Stephen is taken and he is stoned and he is put to death for his faith in Christ. Stephen's a martyr. He shed his blood for the testimony of the Lord Jesus. Even Paul, in Acts chapter 22, calls Stephen that. When he is speaking himself on trial, he says, when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed. He's talking about this Stephen, and of course, that indicates that Paul, or as he was known at that point in the narrative of Acts, Saul was in this scene. I'm not saying he was necessarily a part of the synagogue of the freedmen. There are some who suppose that, starting in verse 8 down through verse 15. We're not told that he was part of that scene, but when it comes to the point where Stephen is sitting in the council, and he is speaking to the council, Saul was a witness. In fact, it seems as though in verse 15, that description of Stephen's face relates to an eyewitness. And even an eyewitness who by this point that Luke is writing had seen an angel. And we'll draw attention to that a little bit later at the end of the passage in other words, the description that Luke is giving there in verse 15, if it is based upon eyewitness evidence, who would have been sitting in the council but Saul, either as a servant to or an assistant to or somehow assisting the Sanhedrin, maybe a part of the Sanhedrin, although that I don't think that's clear from Scripture what role he played. But when Stephen was put to death, Saul was there. He was involved. So we have a very fascinating record here of Stephen's ministry. And I want to draw attention to some things here in these verses that I trust will highlight the significance of what Stephen was doing as he was preaching the gospel, but also help us to recognize that when the preaching of the gospel takes place, that opposition will come. It does come. It came here. And then we see Stephen's faithfulness in the midst of that and God's grace to him, even as he responded to those who were opposing him. So I want to, first of all, look at the description that's given of Stephen in verse 8. And again, if you compare with what has been said before in the chapter, that these servants were to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom, that if you include that with this description, think of Stephen as a man who's full of the Spirit and wisdom in verse 8 says he was full of grace and power. So this is a man who is gifted by God, empowered by God, favored by God to do the work that he is doing, remarkably gifted. This is, a someone said, a mature believer who is continuing to experience the transforming and empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, an unusual way in his life. And he's not an apostle. So this is illuminating to us in that God is not restricted to work by just those who hold official capacity in the church as apostles. Now the gospel, and even this main proponent for the gospel, is being spoken of, and he's a servant who was among them. Yes, he's been tasked with a specific task in the church, but he also has been enabled to minister God is accomplishing things not only through the apostles, but through people that he calls and purposes. And notice what it says in verse 8. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Where have we seen those words before? And we've been reminded as we've gone through 
to this point in the book of Acts that, of course, the apostles were doing signs and wonders. But we don't, we don't only find it in the narrative. Remember, we find it in the prayer. If you just turn back for a moment to chapter 4 and note at the end of the prayer that the church makes, following the persecution of the apostles as they're released and come to the rest of the disciples and they pray in response to the threats that they had received. Verse 29 says, and now Lord, this is Acts 4 and 29, and now Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Well, what do we have here in chapter 6? We have another answer to that prayer. God is still answering that prayer for his people. He did so through the apostles. Here he's doing it with Stephen as Stephen is not only performing great wonders and signs. Remember, those words have to do with the response of those who are observing, they are in wonder or amazement because of the power that is displayed. And it's also a sign, which is a testimony to God being at work, and also a sign that those who are doing the miracles are the servants of God and speaking for God. So God is giving uh, an authentication, you might say, that this person is genuinely from God as they do this miracle. God is answering this prayer, and he's answering it in the life of Stephen, and he's giving him not only the miracles, but also the boldness as the passage continues. Stephen is actively doing these miracles and signs, and he was, as they said in chapter 4, doing them in the name of the Lord Jesus. I think we can understand that based on the context of the book of Acts, that this isn't Stephen somehow doing this without Jesus' power aside from Jesus' name. No, this is all to draw attention to who Jesus is and what Jesus had done, the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, the reality that he'd risen from the dead. Stephen would have, along with the rest of the apostles and, excuse me, along with the apostles and along with the rest of the church, been preaching the gospel. So there's gospel preaching taking place along with these miracles that are being done. And notice it says in the end of verse 8, it just says, among the people. Where was Stephen? Stephen was helping out with those who were needing food day by day. He was out and among the people, no doubt seeing people who were in need, seeing people who needed to be healed. If they were still bringing people in from these cities around Jerusalem and the miracles are still taking place, you could say Stephen is just taking part in that and preaching the gospel as well. But Stephen was notable. Somehow Stephen came to the attention of this opposition that is described beginning in verse 9. So his miracles, his ministry was one of miraculous power, but his ministry was then opposed. And you can, as you read through the description, it's actually by those Jews who are not native to Jerusalem. Notice the description in verse 9. It says, but some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilician Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. Okay, so his ministry his miraculous ministry, but then also his preaching ministry is gaining some opposition. There is argument taking place as he is preaching, as he is teaching and saying what he's saying. There are debates that are arising, and it didn't take much, right? When you look at the Gospels and you see Jesus preaching, teaching, Sometimes a voice in the crowd asks a question, and other times there was opposition from those who he was speaking to. You can see that in John chapter 8, where it's just in the midst of Jesus teaching that suddenly someone asks a question or says something, and then Jesus engages that person or those uh, persons in debate. It's just developed. And the particular group that Luke draws attention 
here too is a synagogue that would include Jews, but a specific named synagogue. It calls it the synagogue of the freedmen. The freedmen, according to one author, were former slaves, or they could have been children of former slaves who had been emancipated by their owners within the Roman Empire. If, this writer says, their owners were Roman citizens, their freedmen were enrolled as members of their family. And you can see the practice of freeing Jews, giving them their freedom after they had been slaves. And this synagogue was filled, apparently became characterized by the, that kind of a Jew, someone who had been freed. But not Jews there at Jerusalem, and the rest, but instead in the rest of the Roman Empire. If you notice the descriptions there in verse 9 of the locations or the places where they're from, Cyrene, Alexandria, those are both North African locations. And then when it says Cilicia and Asia, those would be in Asia Minor. So that's going north from Jerusalem up to uh, Syria and then into Asia Minor where Turkey is. And it's Jews from those areas who had come to Jerusalem as we see back in Acts chapter 2, many people from lots of different places around the globe who'd been scattered because of God's judgment, but had come together. They're now congregating there at Jerusalem, and as they listen, for whatever reason, to Stephen, they get fixated on him, and they start to debate him. And as they start to debate him and start to debate what he's saying, obviously from an unbelieving standpoint, there are arguments that arise. Notice the end of verse 9. It says they rose up, they confronted him, and they argued with him. And among other things, by way of application, uh, we should expect this when we preach the gospel. Uh, remember, he's doing miracles. This isn't what is convincing the people. Miracles themselves were not what convinced people to believe in Christ. God has to give the knowledge of who Christ is. Even Jesus, remember we were considering this in Christian Life Hour up here this morning. Even Jesus said about Capernaum, he said about Chorazin and Bethsaida, that even the miracles that he did there did not bring about their belief. They rejected Jesus, though he came to their city and did the miracles. And so Stephen here is experiencing opposition, argumentation, even as he's trying to preach the gospel. This is the sinfulness of the human heart. And this is the reality with all of us, apart from the grace of God. We are all enemies. It's not that we're any better. We have been graced with salvation, but this is where we were. But this opposition, as it comes, is met with something more powerful. And it's not Stephen. It's who is in Stephen. And I want to just encourage you as well, again, by way of application, that when Stephen speaks here, what is the... What is the power behind his miracles? It's that same power that's behind the speech of Stephen as he proclaims the gospel. Notice in verse 10, as his ministry is described, both in terms of the opposition, but now in verse 10, that he is overpowering that opposition by his wisdom and by the Spirit of God who is giving him that wisdom. Verse 10 says, but they, that group, that synagogue, which was filled with all these Jews who were from elsewhere but had come to Jerusalem, they were unable to cope. They couldn't handle it. They couldn't manage it. They couldn't get around what he was preaching and teaching and saying. God is giving him wisdom in his speech and wisdom even in his argumentation as the Spirit is helping him communicate the truth to these who are rising up. And of course, those who are looking on. In addition to the ones who are opposing Stephen, there are others who are looking on, looking at this gospel preacher and certainly listening to what is being said. And God is giving him wisdom in those moments, and there are people who are observing. 
Jesus had said before that, of course, he was going to send the Spirit, that he was going to empower his disciples to be witnesses. But he even was very specific with Luke chapter 21. If you turn over there just for a moment, he was specific with regard to what he would do by the Spirit to help those who were preaching the gospel. Luke chapter 21, and look at verse 12. I'll start in verse 10. Then he continued by saying to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, plagues and famines. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my namesake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare your beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. So when it comes to Stephen, and certainly others in God's plan who would be taken and persecuted and set up in a situation where they'd have to give an answer, they'd have to articulate the gospel and defend the truth. He even says, don't prepare beforehand. I'm going to give you that. I'm going to help you. And for Stephen... If you turn back to Acts chapter 6, it's apparent that he has, and even expressed, that he has the help of the Spirit as he is preaching and as he is speaking. Verse 10 again, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the Spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen just continues on speaking. Now, I don't know that this extends to every conversation we have. Sometimes, obviously, we're talking to someone and there's knowledge we don't have that we can't just import into our mind as if that, I mean, God could certainly do that, but he doesn't necessarily do that. But we do have the same Holy Spirit, and we do have his help with the knowledge that we have. And so we don't need to be intimidated. We don't need to be afraid. And he can still use, if we don't have all of the answers, he can still use us. And he still does. He's the same spirit. He's the same unchanging God as he has always been. And so if you find yourself in a situation like Stephen here, where suddenly you've got some opposition, realize you're never alone when you witness. You're really never alone anyway but especially when you're seeking to give testimony to the gospel of Christ. Spirit of God is with us. He's there to help us. He's there to aid us as we preach the gospel to people. I want to just encourage you, if you are already experiencing opposition, remember that. Remember that. Don't ever think that you're alone. Now, you could ask someone to pray for you, but you may not, in the midst of a circumstance, be able to do that. But don't forget the Holy Spirit, this omnipotent person of the Trinity, is with you to help you. He helps us in many ways, but one of the ways he helps us is to witness, to testify to the truth. And as he uses us to witness, to testify to the truth, it's very possible that as you're in that kind of context, is it possible that that person that is opposing you would ever be persuaded and actually believe the truth? Is it ever possible? Well, don't forget, we're all enemies of the truth at one point. And don't forget that on the surface of the book of Acts is a man who is very much an enemy of the cross. And yet he became the greatest proponent. And we're not reading about him yet, but he is near to this scene. Saul is alive. Saul is present in Jerusalem. Saul is someone who would have heard Stephen. He was consenting, remember, to his death. You look later on in the book of Acts here and his own testimony. He was there when Stephen eventually is martyred. And so 
Is it possible that God could take your witness and persuade or use that witness in the life of someone who is actually antagonistic or even vehemently opposed? Yes, he can. He has. He does. And praise the Lord. So really, verse 10 is telling us that God is God and that God is with Stephen. And that when Stephen is speaking and he's helping Stephen, that no, they can't overcome because they can't overcome God. They can't overpower God, who is using his servant. And you've heard the phrase, if you can't beat him, join him. You ever heard that? Can't beat him, join him. Well, that's not the tactic of those who are opposing Stephen here. It's not if you can't beat him, join him. Instead, if you can't beat him, start lying about him. That's what they start to do. Start spreading rumors about them. And as you look at verse 11 and down through verse uh, 14, we have, I think, what you could say is a couple of phases. One writer suggested that. I thought that made a lot of sense based on the passage here. Verse 11 says, Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. There's no context for which or in which they are said to say that. It just says that they secretly induced men to say. So if this is a phase of two phases, I would say this is the unofficial phase where they're lying about him just in public. They're just going to spread rumors and falsehood about Stephen. And as that is spread, then later on, they're going to make it official, which I think happens as in verse 12, they get him dragged away before the council. So you've got a couple different phases of what's taking place here. Verse 11 says, then they secretly induced men to say. They found dishonest characters. They didn't do it themselves. Those men of the synagogue of the freedmen weren't going to do it themselves, but they were glad to hire other people or to somehow persuade them to start talking about Stephen in ways that the court of public opinion would be concerned. There would be charges raised that people listening in on what is being said, it would, it would cause them issues. And what are, what are the rumors? What are the things being said about Stephen? Well, they were serious. In fact, if these rumors did turn out to be true, they would put Stephen in a very dangerous position of being executed, capital punishment. What are the words that they started to spread? Verse 11, middle of the verse there. We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So this is actually the charge of blasphemy. This is speaking against or speaking evil of First of all, Moses, and by implication there, the word of God, because Moses gave the law from God. God gave it to Moses. Moses gave it to the people. And of course, people uh, you see in the Gospels and also in the book of Acts, they were very zealous for the law of God and certainly would be zealous for the lawgiver for Moses. And to speak against Moses because Moses represented God was to come near to speak against God. And so this is a, a serious charge, although it might not be uh, blasphemy in the same sense. But the second charge or the second rumor that they uh, are spreading is that he's actually speaking blasphem uh, blasphemous words against God himself. And that certainly was a capital charge. That was reason for execution. Even back in the Old Testament, when a man was fighting with another man, and he cursed God's name. And then because he was not fully Jewish in terms of his blood, they weren't sure what to do with him. And so they put him in hold, uh, arrested him and held him for a period of time, and then asked God what they ought to do. And the uh, Instruction from the Lord in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 11 says, You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord, or Yahweh, shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall stone him. 
the alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So if there's a, an alien in the land of Israel, someone who's not a, a citizen of Israel or part of the nation, but just there and sins in this way, God said he's to be put to death. So these are serious charges, serious rumors, and now they're being spread about Stephen in this whole city by these men who've been persuaded to do so. And of course, it's not true. We know it's not true from the standpoint of the gospel that Stephen is preaching. We also know, based on what is said even in this passage, that this is false witness against Stephen. Uh, as you keep on reading, you see that down in verse 13, they put forth false witnesses who said, and essentially you have the same charges that are now formalized. So this isn't true. Stephen hadn't done this. This is falsehood. These are rumors that are being spread. This is not true at all, but now you're potentially endangering a man's life by spreading lies about him. Stephen wasn't guilty of this. And you know what? God hates this. God hates such falsehood. God hates lying. He hates the false witness who utters lies. That's what Proverbs 6 says. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. God hates not only the lie, he hates the lying tongue, but he says he hates the false witness. That invites the hatred and wrath of God. And you think God is going to deal with this? We don't know how this story played out in terms of the ones who did this, we're going to see how it unfolds in terms of Stephen and Saul. But for those who lied about Naboth in the days of Jezebel and Ahab, and for these individuals who are lying about Stephen, for those who lied about Daniel, those liars are sinning against God and sinning against his people. Proverbs 19.5 says, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will not escape. God is going to deal with those who lie unless they repent of lying. In fact, that same chapter in Proverbs has the same basic wording for the first part, part of the verse. It says, a false witness will not go unpunished. Just four verses later, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will perish. So this is going on that God certainly doesn't approve of it. He hates it. This is being done on a popular level where lies are being spread about Stephen, lies that could result in his death. And of course, we know the story that it will. Not only are they telling lies, but verse 12, they're stirring up people. Verse 12 says, and they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. So this is the second phase. The first phase is to spread the rumors, the lies. This is all taking place without any formal charges. But now they stir up the people, this same group of people from the synagogue of the freedmen, and it, notice the, the, it, the, the description of those who are stirred up. First of all, it's the people, which I, I would take as we look at this point in the book of Acts. This is not any of the Christians. This is the people within Israel, the people within Jerusalem who had not yet believed in Christ. They hadn't believed in Jesus as the Messiah. They're looking on in unbelief, they're listening to what is being said, and the, the, the charges are that Stephen has spoken blasphemy against Moses and against God, and now there's this formal confrontation as the people are stirred up and the leaders are stirred up. It says the elders there. That would be the leaders of the tribes, the ones who govern Israel, the Sanhedrin themselves, and then it says the scribes, 
the scribes are those who copied the law, who knew the law because they copied the law. And of course, if anybody is speaking against Moses who wrote the law, you think the scribes are going to be stirred up? Yes. This is their livelihood. And they had great affection for Moses and the law. They gave themselves and their whole life to the law. And so here's someone speaking against what they stand for. So the scribes are all worked up to. And notice that it says in verse 12, they came up to him. That's really a description of a public confrontation, sort of like they did with the apostles in the temple. This is different, isn't it? If you think about if you think about how the enemies of the gospel progressed when Jesus had such popularity in the following of the people, you remember how they took Jesus? They came to him by night. They came with soldiers. They came to him in the garden where he met with his disciples, tried to make it as secret as possible. No one is around there in the garden of Gethsemane when he is taken, but this is different. This is in the noonday. And based on the charges, it seems as though they could represent this case to the public in a very easy manner. He's speaking against God and against Moses. They thought they had the support. And so to come and arrest him and shamefully take him and forcefully take him away. Notice the way that the Nazbi puts it there in verse 12 is they dragged him away. Uh, I don't believe it has to be translated that way, but I think the translators are trying to show the force of what's taking place here. It's not just, not just, hey, Stephen, would you please come with us? Right? They're coming and they're literally forcefully taking him away. When I think of somebody being dragged, I, you know, you're just like grabbing him by the arm and just dragging him. I don't think that's what's taking place, but he's forcefully being removed from the place of his ministry. Shamefully as though he's a criminal. And this is a good man. This is a man who's a servant in the church. This is a man who is serving God's people. He's taking care of widows. This is a man who's doing miracles. This is a man who's preaching the gospel. And he's being forcefully, shamefully taken away and brought into the court. And of course, now it's official. This phase of their persecution of Stephen is becoming official as they bring him, end of verse 12, before the council. That is before the Sanhedrin. That's the word. So this is that official ruling body of Israel. It would be a national body. And so as they bring him before the council and then start to put witnesses up, to speak about him and what he did, this is court proceeding. And it doesn't tell us exactly uh, the time. Uh, Luke doesn't give us the details of, of what takes place in between verses 12 and 13. This could have involved jail time. It doesn't tell us that it did, but like the apostles, they couldn't necessarily just get the Sanhedrin there right away, and so the apostles have to spend the night in jail. That worked out well when the angel came and released them. But in this case, Stephen is taken, he's held, and now he's brought to trial. And what's the issue at the trial? It's really substantially, it's the same thing as verse 11. If you look back at verse 11, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. But now in verse 13, this man speaks incessantly against this holy place. Why is it a holy place? Why is the temple a holy place? Because God dwells there with his people and the law. And Moses wrote the law. So while there may have been some particular things that Stephen said about the temple that drew attention to the temple itself, I'm just saying that the temple was on earth the place where God dwelled. And it was associated with the dwelling of God. And so here's the charges. This man, they won't even say his name, incessantly as to diminish you know, who he is. He, he continues without ceasing is the idea. He's speaking against this holy place and the law, which again, 
Luke tells us ahead of time, this is false. So he hadn't been speaking against the holy pla- the, the temple as if uh, he's attacking it. He's explaining the realities that, and we have to get into the next chapter to see all that he thought about the temple and all that he was teaching about the temple. But remember, this is a shadow. This building and this place on earth is just a shadow, as the writer of Hebrews says, of a heavenly reality. Stephen's going to say, God does not dwell in temples made by human hands, right? I mean, he, 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 he dwells in heaven, and even the heavens and the heavens of heavens can't contain God. And so as Stephen is being charged here with speaking against the holy place and the law, then they specify, and again, who are they aiming at as they aim at Stephen? They're also aiming at, notice how they word it again, this Nazarene. Jesus, this Nazarene, as if he's just some person from this place, Nazareth, it's caused all this trouble. Yes, because of Stephen's connection with Jesus, they're going after Jesus too. And they specify in verse 14, it says, for we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Now, if you think about Jesus' ministry and even his talking about the destruction of the temple, did Jesus ever talk about the destruction of the temple? He did in the Gospels, and and he was talking about the buildings. But remember early on in his ministry when he cleared the temple and they asked him, by what authority do you do this? What authority do you have to do what you're doing? And his answer to them was, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And they start to reason, you know how long it took to build this temple, and you're just going to build it up in three days? But John gives the explanation that he wasn't talking about the building at that point. He was talking about his body. He was talking about the resurrection of his body. And so there was a misunderstanding that resulted in a controversy and sort of a probably a running or rolling controversy that Jesus talked about the destruction of the temple. That's the guy who said he could build the temple in three days would be a word of mockery. So Jesus had talked about that. And again, he'd even talked about the destruction of the temple eventually as he prophesied in the Gospels. So what these men are saying that Stephen is saying may have some roots even in Jesus' teaching and in the reality, but that threatened for them their way of life, that threatened their existence, because if what Stephen was saying about Jesus was true, obviously they were out of a job. And think about what we understand from the New Testament. Whatever understanding Stephen had at this point in what he's preaching, we understand from the New Testament, especially the book of Hebrews, that Jesus' sacrifice once and for all eliminates the need for sacrifices. It eliminates the need for the temple. And even God gave that signal when he took the veil of the temple and on the day of the crucifixion, it was rent in two. It was a demonstration that the way into the holiest had been made possible. Is this temple necessary? Well, by implication, Jesus' death and his sacrificial death on behalf of sinners made this Old Testament shadow unnecessary. The substance is here. Now, they didn't understand, of course, and we labor to understand as we read through the book of Hebrews, but that really is a simple principle. If the sacrifice of Christ is effective, then all of these animal sacrifices are not necessary. The blood of bulls and goats never could take away sin. Let me just read you something that was helpful for me in thinking about this issue and what Stephen is being accused of. This author by the name of Schnabel, says the the charges in verses 13 and 14 
He says the charges of verse 11 are here reformulated. The expression, this holy place, refers to the temple, which represented God's presence in Israel. The law stands for Moses. I had to labor to understand uh, what he's saying here, but stick with me. I think you'll, you'll catch uh, the sense of what's going on. He says the interface between the law, the temple, and God is the presence of the holy God among the people of Israel which is possible only if Israel's sins are atoned for regularly and consistently. If the believers in Jesus teach that salvation is found for everyone in Jesus and Jesus alone, this view can easily be be presented as blasphemy against the most holy place, where the sins of the people of Israel had been atoned for since the days of Moses. As blasphemy against the Mosaic law, which stipulated that sins were forgiven and access to God restored through sacrifices and other ritual procedures, such as those that were carried out in the Day of Atonement. You understand what he's saying? In other words, how do you get access to God if you're an Israelite? Well, you got to have a sacrifice. How do you have your sins forgiven? Well, if I sin, I take a sin offering to the tabernacle or to the temple and offer that, and then I'm, I'm once again made right with God. That's the picture. But then as a nation, how, how could we get right with God as a nation? And that's when, once a year, the high priest is taking uh, a sacrifice, first for himself, but then for the people, and he takes the blood and he sprinkles it on the mercy seat. And that's how God's people are atoned for. At least that, in the thinking of a Jew... Apart from Christ, that's how things happen. That's how we get right with God. Well, what happens when the substance of all of those shadows comes and accomplishes all of what God intended for those to communicate? What happens when the great high priest, the Son of God, comes and offers himself as a sacrifice for sins and supersedes or actually fulfills the Day of Atonement? No longer do you need a day of atonement because the one who atoned for sins has come and he's laid down his life. You don't need this anymore. You don't need the shadows. You don't need the altar. You don't need any of that. Jesus fulfills it. That's the reality. By the way, if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as the only atonement for your sins, you're missing it. Because the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins, and neither can anything that you do. It's only the blood of Jesus that can atone for your sins. Faith in his sacrifice on my behalf that brings peace with God. Do you have that? So Stephen is preaching, and no doubt, as we will get into chapter 7 as well, as he is preaching and teaching, there is misunderstanding because there's unbelief. There's an unwillingness to recognize Jesus for who he is. And there's an unwillingness to recognize the significance of what he has done. If Jesus came to fulfill all those, will there be an alteration of what Moses commanded? Absolutely. There is going to be an alteration. And we, we put it this way, that when Jesus came, he fulfilled the ceremonial law or all of those pictures which pointed to his sacrifice, making all of those sacrifices unnecessary. The substance has come. The shadows pointed to his sacrifice, but now that he's come, those shadows are no longer necessary. We can learn from them that they pointed to him, but they're no longer necessary as a picture. So, are you going to need goats, bulls, lambs? Are you going to need priests? Are you going to need the sacrificial system? You see how this is actually threatening the very existence of the priests as priests? It's threatening, even one person talked about how it's even threatening their economy. I'm not going to be able to sell goats and bulls and lambs to the temple anymore if this is true 
I mean, it's an alteration. And certainly when Jesus came, yes, he came to change things. He came to fulfill. But these people are angry because they don't understand and they're unbelieving. And by the way, I I laugh, but that's where we would be too if God hadn't given us a knowledge of the truth. So praise the Lord. If you know the truth today and you have the light of Scripture, praise God. Well, the phases, first public, now official, this official phase is not over because these are just the charges or the the testimony that would lead to Stephen having to defend himself. But it's like, here's the charges that have been leveled against Stephen, and now Stephen is going to have a chance to defend himself. But if we could take the camera, they didn't have cameras then, but if they took the camera and they panned over to Stephen, which is really where all of their eyes are gazing in verse 15. It's all eyes on Stephen. Look at verse 15. It says, and fixing their gaze on him. We don't know how many were in the chamber. There are those who fix the number at 70 or 72. Based upon the elders who are leading the tribes who are now gathered, the high priest is there. There are all these leaders. Again, this is a national assembly of leaders, official leaders within Israel. And Stephen's on the hot seat. Imagine that. You ever been in the hot seat? I mean, suddenly you've got to say something and it's been kind of leading up to that. And now you're with fear and trembling, standing in front and all these eyes are looking at you. What do you do? Well, if, if there is fear in your heart, you're going to start trembling. If you've got adrenaline going, there's going to be trembling just because of that. The moment of that, and particularly in light of the charges, this is a significant moment. His life is now on the line based upon the charges that have been given. If there isn't a sufficient defense, he's going to die. Or if they have a travesty of justice as they did with Jesus, he's going to die. All eyes on Stephen, verse 15, and just think about his face because that's what we're told the, the, the attention is drawn to there in verse 15. It says, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. One Bible translation, which gives notes of interpretation, said it this way. He had the appearance of a supernatural messenger. Now, there are those who take the statement in verse 15 and actually suggest there's something about Stephen's appearance here that is like shining, like Moses when he came down from the mountain. Matthew describes an angel at the tomb in Matthew chapter 28, verse 3, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. Now, I think if we go beyond what the text here says, I mean, we could have all sorts of imaginations about an angel, but it does say like the face of an angel. So that has to modify how we understand this. Uh, In his commentary in this passage, John Calvin suggests that there are those who, when they get in the hot seat, so to speak, they start to become pale and they stammer and they have issues because of their fear in the moment. But then he says, but there appeared in Stephen a certain majesty. There's There's a composed man who's facing down this crowd of men, this crowd of unbelievers. Not afraid. This is a man who had seen the supernatural work of God through his life. This is a man who had seen people healed. This is a man who is so empowered by the Spirit of God that by God's Spirit and his grace, he was able to speak in such a way that his opponents could not overpower him. 
And if there's something in this moment that is supernatural, it's the Holy Spirit within Stephen. I don't believe there's a glow about Stephen. But when a messenger comes from God and speaks to a person, there's certainly sobriety, there's truth, there's directness. And there really is something about the presence of a messenger like that. And the eyewitness to Stephen at this point, among others, who gives this description, I believe, is the Apostle Paul, who has seen an angel. Perhaps more than one, I thought of the passage in Acts where it says he was on the ship, and the ship is going through this storm, and there's, of course, the question of what's going to happen with this ship, but he said to those who were on the ship with him, He said, for this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, Paul says, for I believe God will, uh, I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I've been told. What I'm saying is that Paul or Saul had seen an angel. But now he's looking at Stephen. Luke is the one who's writing this, but Luke is a friend of Paul and, of course, tells the whole story of the book of Acts. So I, when, when you think about what's being said here, not that Luke might have never seen an angel, but as he gives this description, it suggests that there's somebody who is there watching Stephen and Stephen's composure in this moment the only thing you can compare it to is he was like an angel in terms of a messenger of God. And there's a cliffhanger here, isn't there? If we follow the chapter divisions, that's what we're left with is everybody is looking at Stephen. And if I could just by way of application encourage you just by the surface of the next chapter. When you get in that moment when all the eyes are on you and you're speaking for God, is the Spirit there? Is He going to help you? In that very moment when you're probably fearful of even getting to that point, Could I encourage you with this? This whole next chapter of his speech is recorded for us in Scripture, which is the Word of God. In other words, what Stephen delivered on this occasion is recorded for us. It actually was God's Word coming right out of his mouth to the Sanhedrin of Israel. Yes, God was with him. And he will be with us too. I'm not saying your words are going to be recorded in Scripture. Scripture has been written, but he will help you. He is with us. Now, we can't forget the end of the next chapter either, because if he speaks the words of God, how do people, sinners, respond to God when he speaks? This is where we need to come back to reality. We might speak the words of God. But persecution may come right away. And we might get persecuted even further. To this point, Stephen has had public opposition. He's now been arrested, but he's going to be on trial. And things even worse are going to happen in the service of God. I say worse. But you can think in terms of the eternal reward even better. This is a martyr we're watching. Let's pay careful attention. And should the Lord ever call us to witness or become martyrs for his namesake, this is a great example for us to really stand in faith and keep on preaching the word of God and speaking the word of God with the help of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you have given your servants in the past to stand up and to speak the truth. We thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit who is within each of us who believe. And there is no reason that we 
need to fear, even if we should be on the hot seat or have to stand and testify publicly because you're with us. Help us to be confident, not only in those situations, but even the day-to-day conversations that we have with those that are lost around us. We pray that we might trust in your help and be confident, Lord, that you're there as a witness along with us of the truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.